0: might sound kind of awkward, but I'd like you to imagine in your mind your own future, and I pray distant future, funeral. Think about what's said, what people believe about you, the priorities of your life that they celebrate. Just think about all of that. And the reason why I'm mentioning that today is because in our passage, David is going to eulogize his father-in-law, Saul, and one of his best friends, his best friend, Jonathan, Saul's son. They're both going to die in battle in the passage in front of us. So what we're going to do today is we're going to read the, the account of their death, and I'll make a few comments as we read through it, uh, but then we're really going to focus on the song that David writes in response to their death. And as we go through that song, that's where we'll go more slowly. And as we go through that song, I'm gonna to try to drive out, draw out for you five different things that David remembered about Saul and Jonathan that I think we might also be remembered for. Some of them we won't want to be remembered for, and and many of them we will want to be remembered for. So let's start out reading in 1 Samuel 31, and we're just going to bleed right into the first chapter of 2 Samuel. So it says in verse 1, now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchashua, the sons of Saul. It's not, not every one of Saul's sons, but three of four. The battle, verse 3, pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. So kind of the idea here is that more than likely the Philistines had chariots and they had archers, and they pursued Saul Saul ran to Mount Gilboa, knowing that if he started climbing this mountain, the chariots wouldn't be able to go up, but the archers came out. And slowly, methodically, they chased him up the mountain and eventually uh, struck him. Then, verse 4, Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. So Saul was nervous about the shame of being "'killed by the Philistines, "'but also was nervous about being tortured. "'But his armor-bearer would not do it, "'for he feared greatly. "'Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. "'And when his armor-bearer saw, saw that Saul was dead, "'he also fell upon his sword and died with him. "'Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor-bearer "'and all his men on the same day together.' And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. So the Philistines moved into Israelite territory because Saul lost. So this is, if you're an Israelite reading this passage years later, this is embarrassing. The next day, verse 8, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul. And his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news, obviously good news for them, to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of beth shan But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of beth And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And probably they did that to disguise the abuse that Saul had suffered. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. All right, So that's the inglorious death of Saul and then his sons as well. Now in verse 1 of chapter 1 of the next book, 2 Samuel, they kind of just go together, these two books. It says, After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. So this helps us understand David was not in the battle. He didn't fight for the Philistines that he'd been tempted to do, as he'd been tempted to do, nor did he fight for the Israelites. He was just in his town, Ziklag. He wasn't in the battle. But on the third day, verse 2, Behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. So now David cares. He really cares about Israel. What happened? He's asking. So the man answered, the people fled from the battle and also many of the people have, fa- have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David, verse 5, said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? You know, this was of utmost concern to David's heart. He believed that Israel had lost, but he really wants to know, how can you say for certain that Saul is dead and his son, Jonathan? Remember, Saul's his father-in-law. Jonathan's his best friend. He wants to know, how, how do you know? How can you confirm this? So the young man, verse six, who told him said, by chance, I happen to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and he called to me and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me for anguish has seized me and yet my life still lingers. So I stood behind him, and I killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Now, what we just read there were two contradictory accounts about Saul's death. You know, in the first one, at the end of 1 Samuel, it said he fought against the Philistines. The Philistine pursued him up to Mount Gilboa, shot him with archers. He asked his armor bearer to kill him. His armor bearer wouldn't do it, so Saul pulled out his own sword and fell upon his own sword. But in the second story, this Amalekite comes with the crown and the armlet from Saul, gives him to David, and says, well, I saw Saul. He was lying on his spear. He was mortally wounded, and so he asked me to finish the job, and I could tell he wasn't going to survive. So I finished the job for him, and here's You know the evidence. More than likely what has happened is this young Amalekite is thinking to, he he probably just got there after Saul had died. He's fabricated a story now for David. He's thinking in his mind because he went, he got to the bodies before the Philistines, so he takes the crown, takes the armlet, and he's like, man, when I bring these to David and I tell David that I killed Saul, David, who has been persecuted by Saul for like a decade now, He's going to put me on his team, you know? So he's like thinking he's going to be happy. He's going to be excited. So let's read what happens next. (laughs) It says, then David, verse 11, took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. So David's like going to mourn over this. And then his his men are going to I think they're just going to pretend to mourn also you know they're just like okay david's doing it so we're going to mourn too but i'm sure in their hearts they're like this is the greatest day of our lives saul is gone And they mourned, verse 12, and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. So this young Amalekite guy, he's just watching this whole thing go down like, oh man, I just brought them what I thought was good news. They're acting like it's really bad news. What's going to happen to me? Well, here's what happens, verse 13. And David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and Amalekite. David said to him, how is it that you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. David, what you have to notice here is that David is now immediately behaving like the king of Israel. He puts this man under capital punishment. He doesn't say even go kill him. He says go execute him. And David then, here's where we're going to pick up the tale, verse 17. Lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son, and he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. Now there's no book of Jasher in the Bible. This was an outside of the Bible book, a collection of Jewish Hebrew uh, songs, different parts of literature. The book of Joshua also mentions the book of Joshua. We don't have it. It's not saved for us, but they saved it there, but they also wrote it in, in 2 Samuel chapter 1, this lamentation, and David began to speak. Now, this song that we're about to read, this lamentation, first of all, let's just say it like this. Isn't it grace that he even had a lamentation? <laughs> I mean, to me, you read about all the things that Saul did to David. You expect to, to read something like, and David wrote a super upbeat pop song <laughs> celebrating the fact that Saul was dead. No, he laments. His heart is broken. The king of Israel has died. And he's broken over that. So let's read what he says. First, I want to show you verse 19 to 21. He says, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. Now the first movement of this song, there's going to be three times that David says how the mighty have fallen. Three times in this song. So that's how he introduces the song. How the mighty have fallen. And when he says that, he's talking about Saul, Jonathan, Saul's other sons, and then the armies of Israel who have lost. So that's who David is remembering. He says how the mighty have fallen. And particularly he's talking about Saul and Jonathan. These two men, these mighty men, they have fallen. And there's Two different ways that David wants this to be remembered. There's one group that he doesn't want to know about Saul's death. It's the Philistines. Did you see it there in verse 20? He says, tell it not in Gath. That's a Philistine uh, stronghold, a Philistine town. He says, tell it not in the streets of Ashkelon, another Philistine territory, and lest, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. In other words, David does not want the Philistines to know about Saul's death because the Philistines will rejoice because of Saul's death. Now, obviously, we already read the story. We know that they did know. We know that they went around and took his body, pinned it up against the wall of Beth Shan. And by the way, the brave men of Jabesh Gilead went and pulled the body down. Forty years earlier, Saul's first military victory was for the people of Bethshan, or for the people of Jabesh Gilead. He had saved them. So forty years later, they come back and they pull his body down from the wall. They took his armor, and they put it in the temple of the Ashtaroth. And so, what they're doing is they're going around and they are celebrating the fact that the Philistines are that their god is mightier than Saul and his god. That's what they're doing. So this is an embarrassing moment for Israel, this failure, this loss of Saul. But there was another group that David wanted to know about Saul's death. And we get that in verse 21, because what he does is he curses the mountains of Gilboa. Did you see that there? And what he does is he says, may there be no more uh, dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. Well, what he's meaning by that is that he's cursing this mountain, and what he wants is it for, to, for it to be perpetually a dry and arid place, so that no grass will grow upon it, so that no cows, uh, oxen, sheep can graze on the slopes leading up to Mount Gilboa. That's why he's, he uses the line, may there be no, no fields of offerings. He doesn't say fields of sheep or fields of cattle. He says fields of offerings. So if you were a sheep, you'd take that personally. You know. But for David, when he saw sheep, you know, he's like, but you also could be an offering. So that's what he means by that line. So he's pronouncing a curse upon Mount Gilboa. In other words, what David was hoping for was that the Philistines would not hear about this, and they did, but he was hoping that they wouldn't because it was an embarrassment for the people of Israel, about the God of Israel, but he was hoping that the people of Israel would hear about it. He was hoping that in years to come, people would walk by the Israelite mountain of Gilboa and see it all dry, arid, and ask, what's going on here? Why is there no green grass? Why why is it that no animals can graze upon it? There's just nothing there. And he wanted people to respond. Well, that's the place that Saul died. That's the place that Jonathan died. Why did Saul die? Why did Jonathan die? Well, Saul had hardened his heart against the God of Israel. He persisted in his own way. And because he'd done that, God lifted his hand from his life, and he lost his life, and he was replaced by a man who was God-hearted and better than he In a sense, David did not want the news of Saul's death to go out, but he did want the news of Saul's death to go out. So I'm sorry about this first point, but the first thing that I have to say that we often will be remembered for is we will be, number one, remembered for our failures. Now before you feel like I'm just going to breathe fire on you right now and just really crush you with a point like this, let me just explain this a little bit. You know, the reality is none of us is going to live a perfect life. In fact, I hate that statement because when we say it, you know, no one's perfect, no one lives a perfect life, it's kind of like giving ourselves a little bit of a, of a pass, right? It's kind of this statement, like when someone says that, it kind of makes me feel like, oh, you know, like I went to the car lot, I picked out a new car, and they forgot to put the floor mats in before I left, you know, but everything else is good. It's not perfect, the floor mats aren't there, but otherwise it's great. That's not what our lives are like. It'd be like buying a car, and you pick it up, and there's no engine, you know. (laughs) Those are some of the gaps In our lives. So sometimes we say, well, you know, I'm not perfect. (laughs) Really what we mean is like, I have just fallen so far short of the glory of God. (laughs) So I'm not here to beat us up about this. Although Saul served as a warning. You know, there are times, especially when the Lord raises you up, where a fall in your life is going to embarrass The community of the saints. You know, when a when a when a prominent believer, a pastor, evangelist, someone like that, you know, falls into some kind of disgraceful sin, there's grace for them, they can be restored, you know, things like that. But it is, it hurts the body of Christ. It's a harmful thing. There's a story in uh in in uh or a verse in in 2 Timothy that kind of illustrates what I'm talking about right now, though. On the other hand about us learning about failures, because remember Paul, Paul, Paul was a guy, he had always had all these friends that he did ministry with. He, he, he would serve Jesus alone, but he did it better when he had other people. So he had companions, you know, guys like Timothy and Silas and Titus and Barnabas and Mark. He had these different people that he would go out and he'd do ministry with. He'd work for Jesus with these guys. And one of his companions, you can kind of trace it out, he had this guy named Demas that was a friend of his, a co-laborer in Christ. But in his last letter that he ever wrote, on his, really on his deathbed, not that he was sick, but he knew that he was about to be beheaded for the faith, he wrote to Timothy and he said, and even Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica. That is the last letter. Word in the Bible about Paul's companion, this man named Demas. Now, you might hear that and you might say, Well, that seems kind of, that seems a little mean of God to put that one in there. I mean, imagine, like, someday, if you're a believer, you're going to meet Demas. I don't know what day it'll be, maybe like day one billion in eternity. You know, you'll meet Demas, and it might, you know, maybe you're thinking, like, that's going to be a little awkward, you know? I mean, he's a believer, but he kind of biffed there at the very end. But, but here's the thing. You know who's so glad that his failure is recorded in Holy Scripture? Demas. Because in the presence of the Lord, he is longing for every believer on earth to walk with him, to enjoy him, to prioritize life correctly. You see, the reality is there are going to be gaps in my life and gaps in your life well, we should want the people in our lives to learn from those gaps. And so we will be remembered in one sense for our failures. There will be things that we leave undone, things that we don't execute correctly. But hopefully the people in our lives can learn even from the mistakes in our lives. So, number 2, let's look in verse 22. Paul goes on or excuse me, David goes on in his song and he says From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back. The sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. All right, now in this next part of the song, David really begins to highlight some beautiful things about Saul and about Jonathan. And here really what he rejoices over is the military strength that Saul and Jonathan provided historically to the people of Israel. Now it's hard for us to imagine that because we just read 1 Samuel 31 where they lost a military battle. But in the years running up to that, they had actually been used by God quite a bit, especially before David came onto the scene to help defend the people of Israel, protect the people of God so that Israel could exist so that the Messiah could come. And so David rejoices over that. He says, you know, they, were, they, they went out to fight. Jonathan's bow was successful. Saul's sword was successful. They were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You see, what David was remembering about Saul and Jonathan is what they fought for in life. The second thing I wanted to show you is that not only will we be remembered at times for our failures, but we will also be remembered for what we fought for in this life. We will be remembered for the battles that we engaged in, the focus of our lives, the fight that we gave ourselves to. I was listening recently to an interview that an author was giving about her work and writing and things like that. She was not a believer, so it's interesting to just kinda of hear her mindset about life, listen to her worldview. And in the course of the interview she shared an article that she'd written about her future funeral and what she wanted it to be like. She wasn't near death. She wasn't sick as far as she knew. It was just something in the distant future for her that she thought, this is how I want my funeral to go. And she just kind of laid it all out. This is what I want here, and this is how I want that. And, uh, you know, it was pretty interesting. It was very secular. There was no eternity. There was no uh, Christ. There was no gospel. The way she concluded it, she said, at my reception, this was her final thing, she said, at my reception, I want everybody To bring food for sort of a potluck meal. But the only food that I want people to bring are organic foods that they have grown themselves. And she said, and I realize that there probably won't be enough food for everybody. And she concluded her essay by saying, and that will be my final lesson. And as I heard that, I thought, man, my apologies, organic food, whatever. I'm sure it's great. I eat organic food from time to time. Sounds good. But I hope to God that's not my final lesson. (laughs) Listen to what Paul the Apostle said. In Colossians 1, verse 28, he said of himself, he said, Jesus Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. Paul was a man who spent his life trying to spread the gospel, preach the gospel, make disciples, expand the kingdom of God here on earth. And we, of course, will not be, uh, you know, as fruitful as Paul the apostle was fruitful. But man, that we would have a quest in life that is aligned with God and his word. Some questions that we could ask concerning this point are things like this. What is the quest of my life? Am I engaged in battles today that I will be proud of, as in pleased and satisfied with, tomorrow? And who might I pour my life into, helping them become more complete and mature in Jesus Christ. A friend of mine named Phil Metzger, he years ago, when he was 17 or 18 years old, he and a few of his friends decided that they wanted to go on a missions trip to uh, Hungary, and some other countries in, in Eastern Europe. They'd been invited to do so. They were Southern California kids living down in Orange County. And they probably didn't even I'm pretty sure at that time of his life, Phil probably didn't even know where Europe was, let alone Hungary. But he wanted to go. Somebody invited him. He said, Yeah, sure, I'll go. I love the Lord. I'll go. His pastor who supported him in going actually wrote him a check to purchase jackets. Because he was an Orange County kid, he had like a windbreaker. That's all he had. And they were going in the winter to Hungary. And so they bought these big jackets and coats and everything. And he went there and they preached the gospel. And a a lot of kids started getting saved. And this real move of the spirit began to develop. And Phil began to realize that God had a call on his life to go and live in that country. And eventually he and his wife, Joy, they moved to Hungary where they spent decades pouring into that community pouring into the city of budapest and pouring into the surrounding regions and after i think almost 3 decades of life and ministry there he and joy they just recently moved back to the states they went moved to to san diego and what they left behind is they left behind a country not just with one church but with 20 30 or 40 different churches and many others that had spread out from those just in that nation uh, they had made a massive impact in that place. The, the fight that they are known for is very clear. It's very obvious. Now, you and I, we might not impact an entire nation, but there are people that the Lord has called us to reach. There are people that the Lord has called us to make an impact with, and so we, we must remember that we will you know, be remembered for the quest that we gave our lives to. But notice also in verse 24, as we move on, David also said of Saul, I love this little line, he said, you daughters of Israel weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. Apparently, during Saul's 40 years of being king, and you know, the parts we've read of his time as the king, they didn't sound so great. In fact, some of David's mighty men, they came from a group of people who said, we're distressed, we're indebted, and we're discontented with Saul and his leadership. But David pointed out, he said, look, the reality is, as he led you, there was some prosperity that he brought into the nation, He clothed you with scarlet. He put ornaments of gold on your apparel. And and apparently his leadership had led to at least a little bit of blessing in Israel. He had to a degree served the people of Israel. And this is my third point. We will also be remembered for the service that we gave to other people. We will be remembered for the way that we served other people. You know what's absent in this song? Absent in this song is any mention of of the way that Saul looked. At the beginning of Saul's life and ministry, when he was chosen by God, you know what it says about him in 1 Samuel? It tells us that he was head and shoulders taller than everybody else, and that he was a very handsome man. That's what it says at the beginning. David never mentions that. That's not important to him, because the reality is you'll not be remembered for your looks You won't be remembered for your sweet triathlon time in 1999, and you won't be remembered for the number of likes you got on an Instagram post. You won't be remembered for any of those things, but you will be remembered for the way you served the people that God placed in your life. Look, some of you are in the first third of your life. I'd encourage you to set your focus upon others and build them up. Some of you are in the middle season of your life, and I'd encourage you to fight for serving others. And some of you are in that final third of your life, and some of you have served the Lord well, and you've served others well. And God bless you for that reality. You are worthy of being commended for fighting the good fight and running that race. May we continue to serve others until the day that we go home to be with Jesus. You see, Jesus Christ remembers all of that service. I love what Paul said again in that final letter that he wrote to Timothy. He said in the first chapter of that letter, everything that I've done for the Lord, I trust that he is able to keep what I have entrusted to him. You know, there were people that Paul served that never said thank you. There were people that Paul served, like any parent understands, who did not appreciate what he had done. But the Lord saw all of it. The Lord witnessed all of it and would commend Paul for that work. Some questions that we could ask on this point would be questions like, whether they recognize it or not, who will benefit from my life? Are there areas of my life where I am serving but don't immediately recognize it as service. I find this is, this is interesting to talk about on Mother's Day because I find this is often the case with mothers. They'll kind of say like, they'll be raising their kids, they're all tired and just burnt out with these children, you know, that are just tough to deal with, and they're, they're working so hard from the moment they wake up, even before they wake up, you know, they're serving, and, and, then, and then they're here, man, I need to serve, and they're like, i got to find a place to serve the Lord. I'm like, you know you are serving the Lord. You got these children that you're raising for him. That is a ministry in and of itself. Another question we could ask is, do I have current responsibilities that I could turn into service? What I mean by that is that there are things that are in your life that are just duties, responsibilities, that you might not actually be serving yet in them, but you could maybe turn them into service. Years ago, I was a, I was a softball coach. My, ki- my, ki- my daughters have retired from softball since then. You know, they kind of caught to the zenith of their careers, and then they moved on to other things. But for four or five years, I was a, so- a girl's softball coach. It was an incredible time in my life. And I noticed that there were two different types of people who would coach softball. You know, so- some people would just kind of treat it like a responsibility, you know, get there as, as uh, late as you could, uh, leave as quickly as you could, just kind of run through the stuff, you know, and it, it kind of felt like, I, it seems like that kind of person, they're the kind of person that someone like roped them into it, you know, like they, they showed up so, at some meeting, you know, to sign up, and someone's like, hey, you're the coach, we're like, oh man, I didn't want to do this, but I guess I got to put in my time, you know, kind of thing, and then there were other people who you could tell, it's like, man, they'd get there early, they'd be greeting people as they arrived, they'd stay late, they'd talk to the, individual families and parents and talk to the kids, they turn their responsibility into an opportunity to serve other human beings. Do you have current responsibilities that you could turn into service? Uh, Last year, my paternal grandmother went home to be with the Lord. She was uh, 93, 94 years old. Just an amazing woman. And as we celebrated her life, that's what she was praised for, her service of other people. She had spent most of her life, unfortunately, raising her five children alone. And her children just praised her, rejoiced in her love, her sacrifice, her devotion. We'll be remembered for that. All right, now verse 25. Let's read this next portion of the song. David acts like he's ready to close the song when in verse 25, he repeats the opening line of the song, by saying how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. He could have closed the song right there, but he had a special word reserved for his friend Jonathan. He said, Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women." Now, this week as I was preparing for this teaching and just kind of asking the Lord, you know, I, I do a lot of reading, studying, thinking about the text and all of that. But as I was thinking about this, in this verse, I just felt impressed to say, do not let this particular point pass you by. And I think the reason why I'm saying that is because this level of friendship that David had with Jonathan is oftentimes very foreign to us in our American culture and almost makes us feel uncomfortable. In fact, there are many who have even taken these words of David about Jonathan and put a meaning onto them that is totally perverted and outside of the Bible, saying that David is somehow expressing some kind of homosexual desire for Jonathan in this. It's like we just don't even know what to do with a man declaring this kind of love for another man. That's not at all what David was meaning. What he meant was that the kind of comrade that he had with Jonathan was nothing like he'd ever experienced was someone of opposite gender. He'd gone to war with Jonathan. He'd been encouraged by Jonathan. These two men were were birds of a feather. They they were of of like species and like heart for God. And because of that, they had grown grown so close to one another. And we will, here's my fourth thing, we will be remembered for the friendships that we have in this life. Look, I want to say it like this. If you today are a believer in the major doctrines of the Christian faith, you know, if you are someone who believes that there is a Father God who created humanity, male and female, in his image, and that those people then fell into sin that led to brokenness and despair here on earth, If you're a person who believes that that Father God sent His Son, the second person of the Trinity, to die, to to live a human life, and to die on the cross for the sin of the world as a a replacement for humanity, to take the judgment of God into His body upon that cross, to be buried and rise from the dead three days later and ascend to the right hand of the Father to someday return and judge the living and the dead. If you are a person who believes That the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, lives inside of his people and that he operates within the body of Christ and that he oversaw the writing of Holy Scripture, 66 books that we're studying here this morning. And you believe that this is the word of God, that we can study and learn God's heart, God's mind, God's thoughts, learn about God from and in every word of this book. If you are that kind of person, What I want to remind you of is that in this particular community that you are living in, you are in the extreme minority. You are in the extreme minority. That's why I want to press hard into this point about friendship. About friendship. Because the church has made mistakes on either sides of this. Sometimes the church has run into an idea of what we really need to do is to isolate ourselves from the world that we're living in. And when you do that, you can no longer be salt and light, a city on a hill, a lamp stand to the community, the world that you're living in. The other mistake that the world, that the church often makes is to assimilate into the culture and into the, to the world that we live in so that our beliefs, our views are indistinguishable from the culture and the environment that we're living in. We're to reject both of those. But the only way that you're going to be able to be in the world, yet not of the world, the only way that you're going to be able to be distinguishable from the world, yet not isolated from the world. The only way that you're going to be able to make it is if you have like-minded brothers and sisters in Christ who are walking through this life with you. Because, quite frankly, the people that are in the culture and society around us, they're not going to think like you. They're not going to believe as you do. And if you want to make it to the end of your life, walking with the Lord, trusting him, then you're going to have to prioritize believing friendships within your life. It says in Proverbs 18, verse 1, that whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. We cannot do that. We must pursue one another, especially, I believe, in the season that we are in, in the culture, the society that we are living in. So... I think thinking about that, looking at David and Jonathan, some of you might need to value Christian friendship rightly. You know, you might be the kind of person who, you know, when you show up at life group, if if the conversation isn't like super deep and you're not getting into like subterranean theological points, you might be really bummed out by that. And you might see people eating like guacamole and chips and just hanging out and being together and laughing and stuff like that. You might see that and just be like, that is not spiritual. <laughs> okay, but the reality is that if those connections aren't formed, if those, if those friendships aren't formed with other like-minded believers, and the day is going to come where that person's faith is going to be tested. They're going to need those relationships. So don't despise Those kind of connections. Some of you have friends already in Christ, but you still need to remind yourself to be friendly because there are other people who don't have those friendships yet. And those friends could be a lifeline for them in the future. And so you still need to be friendly. Some of you might have even said to yourself, like, I think that probably I'm at a place in my life where there's enough maturity and understanding of God's word where I could lead a life group or I could host a life group, but I don't want to because I already have my friends. I already have my connections. I already have my people. I already have believers that are in my life, but there are other people out there who don't have those connections and they need them. And some of you might need to raise the bar within the friendships that you already have. Look, it can't all be guacamole and chips. (laughs) There does need to be that moment where you're willing to speak into each other's lives and share scripture with each other and encourage each other and exhort each other towards godliness and to remind each other of the doctrines of God's word. So perhaps some questions that we might ask on this point would be things like, do I or my children? And I think that's a huge point because Many of us, we've already got our believing friends. We're already kind of cruising along, but it's your kids. It's the younger generation. It's going to be very difficult for them. So do I or my children need to prioritize friendships with other like-minded believers? Is there another believer I would weep for like David wept for Jonathan? And have I allowed fear to keep me from engaging a brother or sister in Christ? Christina was telling me about a conversation she had recently with uh, one, of, one of the young women in the church who is a senior at Cal State Monterey Bay, and so th- that means she's getting done with her senior project, and it was kind of a, it was a group project kind of thing, and she was telling Christina how that had been and what it was like, and uh, she, she mentioned to her, she said, you know, I, I, a lot of times we're trying to schedule getting together to work on our project together. And these other girls that I'm working on it with, they, they have said to me, why are you always going to all these church things? You know, why are you always, it's like a mentoring or, you know, the a, a, a young adult Bible study or, you know, Sunday night service. Like, why are you always going to do all of these things? And I don't think she said it out loud, but what she said to herself was, because if I don't, I'm going to be with you In the bar, doing things I don't want to do, I need to be with God's people. To have that kind of priority, to have that kind of clarity, is so life-giving. Let's read the final line of David's song. He said, how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war have perished. That's the last time, the third time David sings that line. How the mighty have fallen. Here's my last point. Look at verse 19 with me. Before he sings how the mighty have fallen the first time, what does he say? He says, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. When he says that, he's talking about Saul. He's talking about Jonathan. Israel's glory, Saul. Israel's glory, Jonathan. Israel's glory, the armies of Israel. Israel's glory, all of them slain on the mountains. Is there any part of you that when you hear that, it makes you feel a little weird? Like, how is Saul, Jonathan, armies of Israel, how are they the glory of Israel? You see, earlier in this book, in 1 Samuel, chapter 15, Samuel described God like this. He he gave God the title, the glory of Israel. You see, who's the real glory of Israel? Saul, Jonathan? No. No. The real glory of Israel is God. Who's your glory? Well, Your real glory is God. Here's why I'm mentioning this right now. There's some of you. (laughs) You know, I start talking about like thinking about how to build your life, choosing the right fight, you know, serving others. How will you be remembered? I start talking about stuff like that, and there's some of you, you're like the high achiever kind of people. You're so excited about that. You know, some of you, I'm like, just imagine you're at your own funeral, and many of you are like, oh, I did not want to do that. But some of you are like, yes, let's do this. I want to assess myself and improve. I can't wait, you know, kind of thing. And here's, I can relate to you. I can relate to you. you. You, you, you want to you want to conquer, you want, you want to do stuff, you want to make a dent, <laughs> here's just how I wanted to end. For all of eternity, your glory is not going to be what you did. Your glory is going to be God. For all of eternity, you're going to open up your mouth and sing, and you're not going to be singing about what you did. You're going to be singing about the Lord. For all of eternity, you're going to be living there without any regret in your heart, just in awe of the God of the universe. And I just wanted to remind you of that because I think it's possible to spend too much time thinking about your own performance and effectiveness and to not spend enough time just thinking about God, thinking about how beautiful he is, how wonderful he is, how much he loves you, how much he cares about you. Instead, we might want to be like Isaiah, who said in Isaiah 61, verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Look, the reality is, like I said earlier, there's no way we're going to get everything right in this life. It's going to be plenty that we leave undone, plenty that we wish we'd have said that we didn't do. There's going to be plenty of that. So isn't it good that for all of eternity we will rejoice in the God of our salvation? I'm asking, isn't it? That's good, yeah. So kind of let me hang in there. That wasn't nice. So let me close in prayer, and let's just commit our lives to God. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Monterey Podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about Calvary Monterey and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.